Church government. Sermon title this morning is Plurality of Elders. So I've already explained this, but ecclesiology is the theological word for the study of the church. And so what, what is the church? Who is the church? How is she to function? What offices are there? Who leads the church? Uh, what is the nature of the church? All the questions surrounding who and what the church is, is under this theological banner, this, uh, this theological word called ecclesiology. In the history of the church, there has been some de debate about how the church is to be governed. So each denomination, uh, down through the history of God's people, has functioned in a little bit different way. We've got some big things right and in agreement, but we function in some of the smaller ways a little bit different. And so there, although there is those disagreements, uh, there's a lot of agreement across denomination, denominational lines about how the offices function within a local church. And so... Um, first and foremost, I want to get us all on the same page and just answer the question, who is the lead pastor of the church? And I think this really is of utmost importance, and the scripture really is clear on this. Something that every Christian should be able to agree with is that Jesus is the chief pastor of his church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is in charge, and he is our visionary leader. Therefore, no church needs another visionary leader. We all have the same lead pastor, and every single church has the exact same vision and mission. Churches do not have the liberty, we'll get into this in a little bit later, to define their own mission and their own vision. They do not have that liberty. And where they do that, they are in error because Jesus has defined who the church is and what she is to do. And he has given us this thing called the Great Commission. Some of you might have heard of that before. He has told us all what we're to do. So each local church should look identical to other local churches in how we function. What is our vision? What is our mission? Now, certainly, God will use some churches in a unique way and other churches in a uniquely different way, but we do not have the liberty to be some sort of visionary leader. You do not need me to be your prophet. You do not need our elders to give you some sort of specific vision. Jesus is in charge. He is our visionary leader. And sadly, many modern pastors, and unfortunately, Many churches, even though they agree that Jesus is the lead pastor of the church, there's a disconnect and they miss this central idea. They miss this central idea. Um, and they imagine that their pastor or their elders or their vision or their mission comes from men and not from God. And so that's why you'll have somebody that's very charismatic that gets up there and has their vision and their mission will tell you, this is who we are, this is what we do, and so if you're about that too, you can come and get on board with my vision or our vision. And that is sadly mistaken. It's wrong. Every church, like I said, has the same mission and the same vision and the same lead pastor. Now, when we reject that, pastors and churches will often look to leaders or elder teams or whatever their leadership structure looks like, and they will often mistake their leaders for Christ himself. And it is easy for leaders in situations like that to get some sort of messianic complex, thinking that they are the glue that binds people together, that they give the vision that the people unite around. And if it wasn't for them, the people would be lost. You've seen this time and time again. I have. This is a tendency, especially with, I mean, in the last 30 to 40 years with marketing, with the last 100 years in our country, it is so easy to think that pastoral ministry and church life is all about branding and marketing and, and getting some charismatic high-end leader up on the stage to cast this vision. And that is honestly, like as nicely as I can say this, that is complete and utter nonsense. And that's being generous. Pentecostals often functionally replace Jesus with their prophetic pastor or their prophetic leaders. Baptist and non-denominational folks often replace Jesus functionally with their visionary, cutting-edge leader. And it is not right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned about this in his book, Life Together. I love this. In fact, we were talking last night. We had the Shannons over, and Sarah was just reading this book. I read this earlier this year and had read it several years ago and remembered it. This quote stuck with me, and I just want you to listen to this, because it's really important as we get into 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter 5, as we get into these passages here in a little bit. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. God hates visionary dreaming. Now, this is so counter to everything that is big church life in all parts of the country. We love our brothers and sisters who are walking in error, but it is error. God hates visionary dreaming. 
It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters into the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own laws, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first the accuser of the brothers, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. That's like a jaw-dropping line when you read that paragraph. Let's settle it right now. I am not your visionary leader. Okay, I am not the glue here. I could die and we would keep going. Um, I will never give you a vision in the sense that here's why our church exists. Here's what we're doing. You get around. This is what I know God's leading us to do. Uh-uh. We follow Jesus. And any kind of following you do of me, it's follow me as I follow Christ. Follow our elders as we follow Christ. Uh, Jesus is a good enough visionary, is he not? Like, hadn't he given us a good enough mission? Amen, right? I mean, how foolish would it be to say, the Great Commission's great, but here's why we exist. It's silly. Jesus is the pastor of every church, including our church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 makes it clear. He is the head of the body, the church. Who's the head of the body? Elders or Jesus? Jesus is the head of the church. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Who is the chief shepherd? The lead pastor of the church or Jesus? Jesus. Good job, Emerson. That was Emerson, wasn't it? We were standing back there, and when the light hits Emerson's dinosaur shirt perfectly, it shines like beautiful light all over the wall over there. It's amazing. So we want to, as elders in a local church, and elders in every local church, we want to shepherd you towards Jesus and His purposes. That's what good, Bible-believing, biblically-functioning elders in a local church do. Our elders don't have the liberty to make up our mission. Jesus gave us the Great Commission. That is enough. And so when we talk about church governance, we have to start with this foundational point that Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. He binds us together not me and our plans or our dreams, okay? Now everybody breathe a little bit. Okay, that's good. That's really good. We've all been bit, I'm sure, at some point or another by leaders with positions that use their positions to dominate and not to serve, and that is not helpful. Now, in the Old Testament, there are pictures of leadership, and all throughout the Bible, there's pictures of leadership. Um, in the Old Testament, we find out that the people of God were led by prophets, judges, priests, and kings. And although we can learn leadership lessons from them as we look into the Old Testament, we don't get our leadership structures today from the Old Testament. For instance, it would be foolish to say Josiah was made king at eight years old, therefore today we should have some eight-year-old pastors. See how foolish that would be. Like we can learn some lessons about God's providence, his care, his rule, his power. And God used Josiah in mighty ways to bring reform to his people. How powerful God is that he can do that through a young king. But we don't take those descriptions of what happened and make them as normative today. And say, well, look, like, listen, if, if, if you're over eight, you're too old to be a pastor. You know, that's... Not at all what we're to do. It's just as foolish to look at Deborah, who was a judge in the Old Testament, and then conclude we need women pastors today. Because although we can learn leadership lessons throughout all of the Old Testament, that is not normative for how we function today. And because those offices are not templates for leadership in the church today, um, we look to the New Testament and we see that there are qualifications for actual offices. And so we don't want to confuse the leadership lessons that we can take from the Old Testament with offices of the local church in the New Testament. And so we want to learn all that we can and glean all that we can from what God has done in the past through any and everyone. We want to look at what God has said in the New Testament and how God has given specific qualifications, markers for Christian character for those who would be qualified to lead and serve His church and then go with that. 
In the New Testament, we have three offices that are given by way of qualifications. And there are some, you may have heard this, especially if you've been around charismatic churches, which I have most all of my life. There are some who look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, and they want to build church governance out of those verses. And if you've ever heard of fivefold ministry, I think I've mentioned that here before at our church, fivefold ministry. Has anybody heard of the fivefold ministry before? Okay. It's almost exclusively at charismatic churches, which we can learn a lot from, but, but that is very, very common in, in, in those churches. And what they say is that when the verse says he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, that God was giving us some sort of structure for the church. And I, I reject that, and I think you should too, by the way, as a compelling argument, because there are no qualifications for those positions, character qualifications. And it is in the context of gifts to the local church. So those verses, if you get into study Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, and this is kind of a side note, just so we can answer some of the questions that some people might pose. Those verses are not telling us of offices in the church. They're telling us about giftings to the church. There are not offices in the same way that elders and deacons are offices in the local church. So let's answer a few questions. Who leads and serves the church? What are the offices? Number one, elders. Now, when we talk about elders, we're not going to nail down a term for elders, pastors, overseers, bishops, and presbyters, okay? Um, we want you to function well. Most, when you're in, in your life, some of you are going to move, and we want you to function well in the new church that God brings you to. If you're new with us, we want you to be able to, to learn all that you can and take that to another place. But when we talk about the, the terms elder or pastor, we want to use these interchangeably. And in the New Testament, these, these terms are used interchangeably. So when we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to hear the word overseer, okay? It's the same office. And these five, these, these five words have been points of confusion for people, but they're all describing the exact same office. So these five words, again, are elders, pastors, overseers, bishops, or presbyters. So you may be at a church and they use the term elder. There may be at a church and they use the word pastor, and that's an exclusive, that's an exclusive word that they use to describe the same office. That's not a bad thing, as long as they're functioning biblically in that office. They might use the term overseer. As the elder, okay, as long as that overseer is functioning in a 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, Titus chapter 1 way, then that is okay. So these words are interchangeable. And so we want you to function well, so we're not going to nail down to only say the word elder or only say the word pastor. So even in the sermon today, intentionally, I'm going to sometimes say elders and sometimes say pastors. And I'm not going to say, although they're perfectly viable words, overseers, unless I read it in the text, bishops or presbyters. So these are the kind of the most common interchangeable words, either elders or pastors. So all elders are pastors, all pastors are elders. All overseers are elders, pastors, bishops, all the same office. So that's the number one office. Number two is deacons or official servants within the local church. And number three, we could call this an office. Some people don't want to call it an office, but church members or the congregation. Now each three of these offices comes with its own delegated authority and parameters of authority, limitations of authority. So elders have their designated authority and parameters around that authority. Deacons have their designated and delegated authority and parameters around that authority. And then members have appropriate and specific commissioned authority and parameters around that authority. And that's what we're going to be looking at. And as this extremely long intro comes to a close, um, we'll start talking about elders specifically. Acts 6. Everybody, if you have your Bible, turn there. Acts 6, verse 2 through 4. We'll start in verse 1 to set the stage. Bible drill, first one that gets there gets a piece of candy. Anyone? Oh, Daniel. Okay, next week. Candy on credit. Okay, somebody else. Ransom, I'll hook you up with some candy too, buddy. Kiddos, thank you so much for listening in. It's like last week, we're talking about pastors and elders. What are we talking about today, kids? Thank you, Ransom. All right. It's always good to know your kids are listening in. That's awesome. Okay. Starting in verse 1. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the problem was there. 
there are widows being neglected in the daily distribution. So the need in Jerusalem within the church, this church is already at 5,000 people in this church, and the need was very great. And when there was a widow in ancient times, or just, I mean, down through the history of the world, and the head of household wasn't present, it was very hard times on the widow. So the church came along and had an official role where they would take care of widows in need. You see this in 1 Peter chapter 5. And so the Hellenistic Jews and the native Jews, their widows, there was some that were being preferred over the other, and so they had to come up with a solution. So they presented this to the apostles. And by the way, I love this because it shows that the apostles were very approachable. They weren't this standoffish bunch where nobody could bring complaints to them. They just walked up to the apostles and they said, hey, listen, there is an issue. It needs to be addressed. And then the apostles addressed it. Verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, 5,000 people, probably at Solomon's Colonnade. We find out in Acts 5 that they hung out oftentimes in Solomon's Colonnade. The 5,000 of the disciples and said, is it not desirable for us, speaking of the apostles, to neglect, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Verse 3, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in the charge of the task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And then that statement found approval with the congregation. The congregation liked that. So, up front, we see the need was presented, and we see the central role of the apostles. We'll talk more about deacons in the coming weeks. But the central role of the apostles was prayer and ministry of the word. And if there was some task that was getting in the way, not that they were never to serve tables, not that they were not supposed to do their Christian duty of serving and loving and caring for those around them, but when the need became so great that they, if they were going to meet this need, were going to have to neglect prayer and ministry of the word, they couldn't do that because prayer and ministry of the word takes precedent. That can't be neglected. So they said, instead of us neglecting our responsibilities here, we're going to ask you to nominate seven men of good repute and full of Holy Spirit, and we find our first deacon team. At least most scholars believe that this is the first deacon team. Now, um, Jesus, I want to connect the dots here with the apostles and this, 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 this group of seven with elders and deacons. And this, this is going to be more connected here at 1 Peter 5 in just a minute. And just hang with me. Peter is going to call himself not just an apostle, but an elder. And so I think what we see here is a template in Acts 6. And I'm not alone. Most scholars agree on this, like I said. That this is a template of what responsibilities and roles of elders and deacons are up to this day. We see the origins of these responsibilities there in Acts chapter 6 already. So let, let's connect the dots real quick with the apostles and elders. Jesus chose 12 apostles. And although he had all sorts of people around him that he could have chosen, he had all sorts of people following him and learning from him, Jesus chose 12 mostly blue-collar men to be his apostles. Jesus didn't care about being woke, by the way. Like, could care less about that. <laughs> like, could care, you know, it's like, it needs to be diverse. There needs to be some women included. You know, we don't want to offend anybody. There needs to be, you know, make sure everybody's a different color of skin and different ages. He just, he didn't care about any of that. He chose who he chose. Deal with it. Right? Like, come on. Gosh. So after Jesus' ascension and after Pentecost, these apostles did the work of teaching, and they did this before the qualifications of the elder were laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So they were functioning in this manner where they were doing the prayer and ministry of the word in a more specific way. Everybody was studying the scriptures, the scrolls, listening to the, the words uh, teach. They were listening to the apostolic word in Acts chapter 2 and 4. They were fellowshipping daily, all the things that we still do today, by the way. And so they were doing this work. And then when elders were established, Peter would call himself a fellow elder in 1 Peter chapter 5. He viewed himself as a pastor of the local church. Even though he's an elder, even though he's an apostle, he viewed himself as an elder. And so some of the same functions that are happening with the apostles are going to be present in the lives of the elders. And by the way, he did not view himself as a pope. He viewed himself as a fellow elder. 
He didn't see himself as the, the, the king or the leader of all the elders and pastors in Jerusalem. He just saw himself as a fellow elder. I'm Peter. Yeah, I was an apostle. I'm a fellow elder, which is really important. So in Acts 6, these apostles, they bump into this problem. If, if, the, if they were to meet these needs, that means, that means the word of God in prayer would be neglected. And so they raised up these seven to feed the widows um, and, uh, and really do the acts of service, any acts of service, not just exclusive, exclusively taking care of the widows, but any acts of service that would get in the way of prayer and ministry of the word. So as, as these apostles are ministering to people, as they're laying hands and praying for the sick, as they're meeting the needs of others, they're still doing that ordinary work. There's all these other needs that are there, and they certainly could have filled their schedule up, I mean, so full where from morning to night, they're meeting the needs of people. And all of a sudden, we're like, my goodness, I haven't, I haven't prayed, and I haven't been in the Word today. And so they had to make this decision, according to the leading of the Holy Spirit, to devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the Word. And I love that the congregation responded with approval. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. The congregation knew the priority of the preached Word and the prayers of the saints. So it met with approval. Now, even though, as stated, the words elder and deacon are not used, most people agree that this is a picture of what was solidified in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is like this, this, this precursor case study of what this looks like in the life of a local church. More on that here in a little bit. Go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, we're going to turn three times today, and that's not all that typical. Typically, in our church, we... Stay in one passage, and we look at that passage, and we kind of just squeeze it and, and see as much as we possibly can that's in the text. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one time, upon preaching 14 years through the book of Romans, somebody accused him of seeing too much in the text. Well, you're just putting stuff in there. 14 years in one book. By the way, there's a pastor in, in uh, Africa that just wrapped up a 21-year sermon series through the book of Romans. Took us about a year and a half. And so somebody was accusing Martin Lloyd-Jones of seeing too much in the text. And he said, oh no, dear brother, there'll come a day where we find out how much we missed in the scriptures these last 14 years. Like, man, it's so rich, right? You just keep looking and there's treasure after treasure after treasure that you see in God's word. 1 Peter chapter 5. How are elders to shepherd? How are they to do the work of of ministry. That's specific. We've got that, that case study we just looked at. Now, how are elders to function in the local church? And then we're going to finish with the qualifications of an elder here in a bit. Here in a bit. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. There I, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and our partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. I love this. When you're thinking about pastoral ministry, if you're doing a study on this, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 tell you the qualifications of an elder. 1 Peter 5 shows you but this is how an elder is to function in a local church. This, this is how the, the elder is to lead. This is how he is supposed to be. Acts chapter 20 gives insight into that as well. And Acts, and Acts chapter 6. But this, this gives us insight. Again, when you look at passages, and I was telling somebody this week about this. Um, the Bible, when it speaks about marriage, there's not a, a massive amount of section just explaining everything and all the ins and outs of marriage. Okay? But the passages in the scripture on marriage are so potent with power, we don't need a ton of extra stuff. They're just so potent. And passages like this are potent with power. It shows us how elders are to function. Clears up a lot of the confusion for us. First, we see that, Paul, or that Peter exhorted the elders among you. Now notice the, the plural of the word. The elders among you, plural. Not, I exhort the elder among you, or the lead pastor among you, or the senior executive leader among you, or the chief visionary, vision-casting, giant guru among you. The elders among you, the plural of the word. Local churches in the New Testament had a plurality of elders, not just single elders. In fact, every single time in the New Testament when elders are mentioned, it's mentioned in the plural. There is not one example in the New Testament of a church, a local church, with only one pastor. 
Not one example. Which is shocking. Because in our own denomination, which we're a part of, this SBC, the standard modus operandi of the denomination has been one pastor with a deacon board. And the reason, I, 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 for, for the life of me, I, I can't understand that. Um, I think for most, well, this is how we've always done it. Are we seen it incorrectly and abused? And so we're going to come up with our own way to do it. We're only going to have one pastor of a local church. There's literally not one example in the New Testament of a church with a single pastor, like one guy. It's always in the plural. A couple examples. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. After churches have been planted in the book of Acts, Paul is going back through and talking with these churches, visiting Paul and his compadres and his homies they were going through and talking to these pastors, these churches that were planted. And here's what it says. Acts 14, 23. And when they appointed elders for them in every church. Elders, plural, every church. So this isn't talking like, well, that could have been just elders, but one elder per church. Elders, plural, every church. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, the island of Crete was not much bigger than, the, than like Jackson County or Williamson County. It's a, pretty small, it's a pretty small island. And there were several little villages and several little churches. Well, in each one of those villages, in each one of those churches, Titus was left in Crete specifically to appoint elders, plural, in each one of these little churches. That was the responsibility that Paul had charged him with. So churches, therefore, and you can read this in Alexander Strong's book, Biblical Eldership. You can read this in a ton of different books that do, do a biblical survey on church elders. Churches are to have a plurality of elders, not just one elder. This is normative in the New Testament. A plurality, not just one elder. Now in verse 1, we see it again. Peter calls himself a fellow elder. Peter did not appeal to his apostleship when he was addressing fellow elders. He saw himself as a, an elder. He didn't come to them saying, I, Peter, am your apostle of the church of Jerusalem. You should listen to me. Or the churches that have been dispersed from the persecution in Jerusalem. I, apostle Peter, although at times he does mention his apostleship, when he's speaking to elders, he calls himself a fellow elder. And that's how every pastor, even the, the pastors who labor in preaching and teaching, and I do more of the preaching here, I should always see myself as a fellow elder. So if anybody calls me the lead pastor or something like that, it's going to be somebody else. I don't ref, and you know me, I don't, if you know, if you've spent some time with me, I don't refer to myself as the lead pastor of this church. And that's a discipline from the beginning. I'm a fellow elder, like Pedo is a, Peter, Pedo, Pedo is his nickname. <laughs> that cracked up Ransom back there. I keep hearing Ransom today. Um, now, here's the deal. We don't know if every single apostle was an elder of a local church, but we do know that Peter was, and he simply saw himself as a fellow elder. So that was important. Um, um, and it's also important because Though elders have different giftings, like elders are not just like the same exact person. Every single pastor is, is different. They have different personalities, different giftings. And although they have different giftings, it's the same office. So Peter was not a super, super pastor with two votes or three votes or five votes. He was gifted to do specific things that other elders were not gifted to do. And other elders were gifted to do things that he was not gifted to do. And 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 shows this differentiation. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So even though every elder must be able to teach, elders have different abilities and competencies, but it is still the same office, the office of elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, or presbyter. And Peter had more experience. He still, in a humble manner, saw himself as that fellow elder. Uh, verse 2, they are, to, they, they, are to, um, they are to oversee the church. Look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. That, by the way, is authority. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Not for sordid gain or shameful gain, but with eagerness. Eagerness. Oversight should not be done under compulsion, but willingly. Pastors who are doing pastoral work because it's a job to them should quit right now. 
Pastors who are doing the work to get a paycheck do not belong behind a pulpit or behind a counseling chair. The day, there should never be a day, ever be a day, that I'm just sticking it out because I need a paycheck. And I don't know what would have to happen to my soul. I, I don't do this for money. I really don't. Uh, nor should any elder, any pastor. Most pastors, by the way, don't get any remuneration for their work. But to do this out of compulsion rather than eagerly is to advocate the responsibility God has laid upon any pastor. We're not in this for money, as it said, not for shameful gain. That's why it's so outrageous when a pastor presents himself to the world as somebody who has a lot of material gain. Um, driving Rolls Royces and flying around in jets is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's foolish, and most normal people understand that. Um, shepherd as God would have you, eagerly, eagerly. I want to do this work, and I, I want to love people well. I want to point them. I want to preach the word faithfully. I want to do this with eagerness, or e eagerness and I don't want to lord it over those in our charge. I am not coming around to bring a mallet to you and, and to lead this church into how I want you to look. That's not how you're to shepherd. But we're to be examples. Be examples of the flock. Look at verse 3. Not lording over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And all my life, I aim not to be Jesus to you, but to be an example. I want to be obedient in every single aspect of my life. And every elder of our church longs to do that as well. Any elder that we will see raised up, that God raises up around us in the future, is a man that's going to want to be faithful in all areas of his life, to have no secret compartments of their life, to want God to move in their life in every aspect. They want to obey God in his word in every way they can obey God in his word so that people would be able to follow that example. Um, and, and that's why the qualifications of being an elder have everything to do with character more than competency. Okay, Everything to do with character more than ability. The qualifications to be an elder are about a man's character with the exception of he has to be able to teach. That's the only gifting. Therefore, if the elder, if the pastor is leading the church and living as a godly Christian man, then people should be able to look at him and replicate, not giftings, it's not a matter of replicating giftings, everybody's going to have different giftings, but character. That's a man who means what he says and says what he means, and he wants to obey God in every aspect of life, and if I follow that example, then I'm going to want to obey God in every aspect of my life. It doesn't mean that me or any other pastor is perfect, it's that we're striving to bring our life in accordance to God's word and saying, hey listen, if I mess up, I'm going to come to Jesus. When I mess up, I'm going to come to Jesus, I'm going to go to God's word, and I'm going to give you my word that by the grace of God, I'm going to do the best I can to live obediently in all aspects of my life. That's what every elder should strive for. So let's go and look at the qualifications. Let's look at this character, the character of the man that God calls. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 through 7. And guys, if this is too fast for you, it is, you can, I can get you these notes if you want. You can study this yourself or just re-listen to this if it's helpful or talk to me, just whatever. We can clear it up if it's been confusing. So now we're looking at the qualifications of an elder out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Starting in verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, there's that word, overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a recent convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he will not fall into reproach or the snare of the devil. Now, one of the things that we notice in this list is that all women are excluded from the office of elder or overseer, 
and most men are also excluded from this office. All women are excluded and most men are excluded from this office. And this is not bad news at all. Any prohibitions that God gives in his word are good for you. And any commissions that God gives to us, both male and female, are good for us. And in this specific way, limitations around the office of elder is good for so many people because James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as we will incur a stricter judgment. We're judged with greater strictness. All prohibitions in God's word are good for us, no matter what they are. Ladies and most men, God has not called you to this, and you should be thankful for that. Uh, you've got a, enough good work that God's called you to. So uh, see it kind of like a, whew, thank you, God. Thank you that you've not called me to that. Prohibitions are good. It's sad when people think they know better. And it's, it's foolish when people think they know better. Men are called to the task of pastoral work. Men. Specific men. Jesus chose 12 men as disciples, as his apostles. And the office of elder is prescribed in like manner, in like order to men. Now, another important note is a man at some point in his life may be disqualified from pastoral ministry and later, in another point in his life, be qualified for pastoral ministry or vice versa. At one point, be qualified and then through sin, not through moral failure, but through sin, Ryan, um, not that Ryan disqualified himself. I'm saying he doesn't like the word moral failure when it's attached to a pastor. Just call it what it is. Don't call it a moral failure. Call it sin. So a pastor can disqualify himself through sin. So the qualifications aren't a one time you're qualified forever or you're disqualified forever. It's very important. Uh, the question is, is the man qualified now? That's the question. Is the man qualified now? We need more and more men and more and more young boys. Young men, look at me right now. Come on, look at me because I think God may call you to this. My boys in the back, all these young, young boys in here. It is a good and holy thing to be called to do the work of pastoral ministry. It's not nearly as cool as being a Christian. It's not nearly as cool as being a husband or a father. Those are way better. But being called into pastoral work, to be this kind of a man is a good thing. And we need more and more men across this globe who aim for that. And we need more and more moms and dads who are praying that their sons would be this kind of man. We need more, more grandmas. Grandmas used to pray for this kind of thing. Generations back, my grandma, our grandma's praying that their kids and grandkids and their great-grandbabies, these boys, would grow up and be godly men and take over the world for Jesus and be pastors. But as pastoral work has gone down in public credibility, it seems like more or less and less people actually want to be a pastor. As it doesn't give you the social clout that it once did, it actually brings ridicule, especially if you're not going to be uh, kind of a weaselly, slick kind of a person. It's not going to give you what it once did at all. And uh, somehow there's complaints across almost every denomination. Where, where are the people that are called to pastoral work? Where are the men? Um, may it never be said about our church ever, from generation now to generation to come, where are the men? We should be able to see them. There they are. They're serving. They're loving. They're giving their lives. They're sacrificing. They're laying their life down for their family. They're leading well. They're taking the hill. They're not scared. They're not shaking in their boots, afraid of what people may think of them. They're not scared to say, this is what God has to say. Deal with it. They're not turning around and running away because there's a little army running towards them. I'm not talking about physical, but spiritual. They run into spiritual warfare, not away from it. May it be. There are many men in the position of elder who are once qualified but who are no longer qualified, but because of the fear of the elder team or the congregation, what would they think if he was reprimanded and removed? The church does nothing, the eldership does nothing, and people with titles remain in positions, continuing to harm people and continuing to defame what the title actually means. That's why so many of us have experienced, well, I've experienced an elder-led church and it went terrible. Yeah, because people had titles but didn't have character. 
And it wasn't the title, it wasn't the office that was wrong. It was there was wrong men with leadership responsibilities. And when bad men have power, it goes really, really bad. So notice the first limiting qualification. First limiting qualification. Look at verse 1. See what time it is. Okay, gosh. Okay, here we go. We're going to go through this pretty quick. Um, it's, this is two weeks in a row. I'm sorry I've gone so long. But it's a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to the office of elder, there's your number one requirement. You have to aspire to it. The, the aspiration for pastoral work has to be there. If anyone does not aspire or desire the work of pastoral ministry, he's not qualified. He has to aspire. A healthy aspiration for this work is a good thing. No one should walk into pastoral ministry without a desire for it. So young men, older men, if, you, if God's calling you to this, it's not going to be because I come to you and say, God's called you to this work. From the inside out, you'll know, and it will be confirmed. And it's mysterious how God does, does that work. But if you don't have a hel healthy aspiration for it, not an aspiration for power or control, but a healthy desire to do it, you're not called to the work. Then the man has to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, or we could say not polygamous. Not having many wives. He's got to be a committed man to one woman. He must be temperate, prudent, respectable, and hospitable. He must be able to teach. This is the only gifting required in the whole list. It's the only gifting. Everything else has to be with, with character. The character of the man inside out. Real character. Not phony, like the man puts a face on and, and dresses the part and looks the part. From the inside out, the real deal. This is the only Gifting. Every elder must be able to teach. It does not mean that they have to preach regularly, but it does mean they're able to open the Bible and teach God's Word accurately and refute those who do not teach God's Word accurately. They must be able to handle and have a handle, a grasp on what the Scriptures say. And if you've talked to any of our elders here, by the way, I'm regularly blown away by the minds and the hearts that God has given them. I, I learn from our elders regularly. I, I, they, they've thought through things and wrestled through things biblically that I've not thought through and wrestled through, wrestled through and I'm, I, I learn from them. They're sharp men. The elder must not be addicted to wine or pugnacious. He's got to be gentle. Now, gentle like Jesus. Gentle doesn't mean limp-wristed, weak, can't tump over some tables. Like, that's not just niceness, be nice. But gentle. You have to know how to play with children. You have to know how to take care of your wife. You have to know how to be gentle with the person that's in front of you and know where they're at, where they're at emotionally. Like if I say this, is it going to do more harm than good? Is it going to cripple them? How, how do I speak the truth in love in a way that's going to be helpful and it's not me shying away from speaking the truth? You've got to be gentle. You've got to be peaceable. You've got to flee and be free from the love of money. If you love money, you can't be a pastor. And then he must manage his own household well. This is so crucial, the importance of the household. Households are going to look different in different seasons of life. So whatever season of life the elder is in, he should be managing his household well. Specifically, Paul mentions children. He must manage his household well. Look at verse 5. If he doesn't know how to manage his household, how will he take care of the church of God? And then Paul's assumption is that there's going to be children in the household. The key point is manage your household well. If you can't do that, you can't shepherd the church. The home is a microcosm of the church. How a man is in his home, that's how he's going to shepherd. How a man is with his wife, that's how he's going to shepherd the sheep. How a man is with his children, that's how he's going to disciple or evangelize or take care of the church. Eventually, a church will look like the homes of the elders. And if the elders' homes are out of order, it's very, very difficult, almost impossible for the church to be in order. Because how a man manages his household, it gets expressed in how he shepherds the people of God, the church of God. Um, whatever the elder's household, okay, oh, I just said that. Um, if, if pastors, therefore, then, if, if there's unhealth there, then in times there's going to be unhealth in the church. So the pastor has to be vigilant that his home is healthy and joyful, and it's not just rigid and cold. There's a lot of rigid and cold churches, and they're that way because they're pastors in the pastor's home. It's rigid and cold and just void of joy. You don't have to be like my home, singing and dancing like my wife all the time. <laughs> Kidding, that's me. Dancing in a masculine way, by the way. 
I'm just very energetic when I wake up, you know? But many men are unqualified. And get this. Hear, hear this. Ladies, this is important. Um, many men try to lead well, and their wives don't want any, any, any part of it. And so there's many men that are disqualified because of their children's disobedience. And usually that's directly related to his discipline of them. But also, there are many men that are disqualified because their wives do not want to be led, and their wives are ungodly. So there's very few uh, callings where you can be disqualified because of your home. You know, you can have a divorce and go back to your job in most places, and not in ministry. Like, it, it just, it's not that way. Uh, wives have a powerful ability to disqualify a man from good work by her character. And husbands have the ability to ruin homes and churches by their bad character. Pastors have to be vigilant. Children, uh, when the children are at home, they should be submissive and under control. That doesn't mean that pastors' children are always going to be perfect, but it does mean that it's a tragic, tragic thing that we have a negative nickname attached to pastors' children today. A PK is almost universally a negative connotation. And that is an indictment upon pastors all across this land and all across this world. Children should in no way be growing up bitter at the church because the dad was never there or because the dad fell in love with the church more than he fell in love with his family. Uh, the home is the testing ground. So if a man uh, does not... Um, Let's talk about single men real quick. But uh, if a man does not have a household um, to, to examine him with, it's very hard, like people in the household, it's easier for a man to manage his household when there's nobody in it. But then when you put a wife and children in it, same thing for your wives. Like you're, you, It's really easy, ladies, if you're living on your own. Then, then you get married, and you're like, oh, my goodness, it's, what's going on here? When you get married, uh, management becomes difficult as a head of household. And if you've not been tested through marriage and through children, it's very, very difficult to see that character of that man. Um, I, when I first was in ministry, I was a single man and my household was not in order and I was not qualified for pastoral ministry. And I was pastoring several years not being qualified. And God was gracious to use um, me and others, but I wasn't qualified. Um, so single men, real quick. Most, uh, most people say that Paul was, uh, you know what, we're going to skip this for the sake of time. Um, it's very rare that a single man should be a pastor. Very, very rare. In fact, I'm kind of debating whether or not it's ever appropriate. And um, that's for another day when we have more time. Uh, let's finish with Jesus, the good shepherd. John 10, and we're going to make this, instead of a teaching time, we're going to turn this into a sermon. And we're going to preach about the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. Three minutes, we will be done. Three minutes, we'll be done. And guys, I do typically, the Jacksons are here with us for the first time. We're glad you're here. Typically, yeah, woohoo! So if you don't know the Jacksons, get to know them. I typically preach, our sermons are usually 40 to 50 minutes. Um, and uh, like I said, in one passage. So this is unique for us, but um, this will be kind of like this next week as well. John 10, let's talk about Jesus, the Good Shepherd, verse 11 through 14. I am the Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He who has hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned with the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own, my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Jesus is the lead pastor. He's the chief pastor who laid his life, really laid his life down for his sheep. That includes pastors who happen to be his sheep, me. Jesus laid his life down for me. He died for you if you were in Christ. And the sheep have promises. Christians have promises that other people do not have. In this passage, we don't have any promise to the world at all. The promise is for the beloved, the Christian, for you. Have you heard his voice? Have you followed him? Are you his sheep? Then you have this promise about his death. And in fact, it's inverted in the other way. Those whom he died for will become his sheep. If you are his sheep, you have heard his voice and come to him and found out that he in fact did live and die in your place for you. This is my hope, that he's my lead pastor, that I'm not doing this thing on my own. 
I'm not doing this thing called life on my own. Jesus lived and died in my place for me. And if you don't know Jesus today, definitively, you cannot say that Jesus died for you in the same way that the promise that we have, in the same way we can say, Jesus died for me. My sins are forgiven. Because here's what I promise. If you don't come to Christ and repent of your sins, if you're a non-believer in here, you will not stand before a holy God and say, Jesus died for me. You will be cast into outer darkness, in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die. And you will experience the wrath of God. Because the promise for us in this room, for those who are in Christ, is that Jesus experienced the wrath of God for us. And that's the invitation today, that you would repent of your sins and trust in Christ, and that you would be able to say with the saints of God that Jesus died for me, that his death was for me. What he did, I know my sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done for me. We are not universalist here in the sense that Jesus just died for everybody in the same way. That's not true. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And if you don't come to Christ, you, can, you have no hope of heaven. Like there's just there's no hope of heaven. And so come to Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, the good shepherd, not the hireling who throws us away, the one who faces the wolf, and not just the wolf, the devil himself, and looks him square in the face and doesn't shake. He doesn't fear. He's not running away. He does his tasks. So repent and come to Christ. And finally, pastors then, therefore, are to shepherd like this. We are not the hired hand. Pastors are not to walk away when danger comes. We're to pick up the sword, pick up the trout, pick up that shepherd's crook, and just like a good shepherd, take the blunt in and go to war with the wolves. That's what pastors do, like Jesus. We don't run. We walk in, and we take out the wolf, and we grab the sheep, and we pull them in, and they say, let's come to Jesus again together. And so if you're ever attacked by wolves or false teachers or spiritual warfare comes upon you, we want to come and be a part and go to war with you. And for you, that's how we are to shepherd. We are to fight, fight the wolves, the sheep are safe. We're to give up our lives like Christ gave up his life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Uh, help us to shepherd like Jesus. I want to pastor, I want to be a man that, that pastors like Jesus. Uh, Father, I thank you for your grace that's upon us. I pray this is helpful today. I pray that this maybe have cleared some, some debris or some confusion that people have had about a local church and how we function and why we do what we do. And Lord, I just ask that this will be helpful. If anybody doesn't know you, I pray they would trust in you today. For all those that do, I pray that we look at John, John 10 and hear that Jesus laid his life down for us. For me? Jesus laid his life down for me? I didn't deserve that. I should have died for my sins. I should have had to pay the penalty of my own actions. And yet Jesus came to die for me? God, you are gracious. Jesus is worthy of all of my praise. And God, help us just turn our attention, turn our minds and our hearts to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.